Well, happy Father's Day. I'm glad that you've all been able to make it out, and I'm glad that the Lord has blessed us today. I was thinking uh, this week about what the worst thing that I ever did as a father was, worst decision that I ever made, and there are several, but one that came to mind was when I was much younger, before I ever started working here, I had, my son was about three, and I was trying to make a living doing a variety of things. I was working at a little tiny church that couldn't pay me much. And I had this this side hustle where I would show up as Santa Claus on Christmas Eve at people's houses so their kids could actually see Santa putting presents underneath the tree. And whatever you feel about Santa, I was just trying to make a living at the time, so... And my son, Josiah, was about three. And I remember it was, it was Christmas Eve. He had been told to go to bed. And I was out in the other room getting the Santa suit on, getting ready to go out to the gigs that I had. And he wouldn't go to bed. He kept getting up, wouldn't go to bed. And finally, I came out and just yelled at him, get in there and get to bed or else you're not going to get any presents. And then I realized that I had the full Santa suit on. He was yelled at by Santa on Christmas Eve. I'm proud of both my children now, Charity and Josiah. They both have a master's degree. They are much smarter than I am. They are in the mental health field. Uh, Make of that what you will. Uh, If you want to get into the mental health field, I suppose having Santa yell at you on Christmas Eve is probably a good start. Uh, That's what they do now. And I've, as in as I was as a father, and as much as I can remember the serious errors that I made as a father, we have a perfect father. Some of you look back upon your fathers and you think that they were wonderful. Others of you look back upon your fathers and you think it was awful. But whatever your earthly father might have been, we have a heavenly father. And today, I want us to think about that heavenly father and ask ourselves, what can we know about him and how can that affect the way that we live? We learn about him in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, often called the Lord's Prayer. It's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I will read it for you. Matthew chapter 6, it starts in verse 9, where Jesus is saying to his disciples, whenever you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you will forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this passage to us. Our Father, we're thankful today that we can come before you and that you are a God who not only speaks to us through your word, but you are a Father who listens to us. And we pray that you will listen to us today and that you will teach us through these words of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. I think there are three simple things that we can learn from this passage about the way that we act and what having a heavenly Father really has to say to us. 
three very simple things that you can take away with you today on this Father's Day. The first thing that we know is that we know that he is a kind father. And the image of a father in the New Testament, and notice that the prayer begins, our father. Now, this is not the first time in the history of the world that some Jewish person has called God father. You hear that sometimes, but it's, it's ill-advised. There are other places, both in the Hebrew Bible and in other Second Temple Jewish literature, where God is called father. But it's fairly rare. Jesus here is using a term of, of some familiarity. It's not daddy, no matter what people tell you, it's not that. But it is a, a term of some familiarity. He is our father. And the image of a father in the New Testament is of a very, very kind and merciful person. God is called Father 224 times in the New Testament, and actually 31 times in this Gospel of Matthew, God is called Father. And yet when we think about the way that God is portrayed to us in the New Testament, we think about some of the most significant fathers in the parables of Jesus. The most the one that comes immediately to mind for all of us is the father of the prodigal son. You remember, Luke tells that story of the son who wanted his money, he wanted his inheritance early. And so he asked his father, which was essentially like asking his father, hey, do you mind dying so I can get your stuff? So it was just that brusque. And he goes away and he, he wastes it all in another land. And then he comes back. He ends up in that other land eating the worst kind of food, having the worst kind of job. He was a, a, a person who was tending to, to pigs, a terrible job for a young Jewish boy. And he finally comes to himself. He says, even my father's servants have it better than I do. So I'll go home and I'll ask my father if I can be a servant. And we all, we're all really familiar with the story. The father has this amazing reaction. The text, Jesus' story says the father saw him from a long way off. And we, we infer from that that in all likelihood, the father was watching for his son to come home after a long time. Just kept watching every day, hoping like a Cubs fan that one day they're going to win the series. And finally, just like in 2016, he sees his son coming down and he runs out to meet him. He runs out to meet him probably because he wanted to protect him from the rest of the village who knew the kind of shame that he had brought down upon his family. He runs out to meet him. He gives him a new robe. He gives him a ring. They have a party that night. And the older son is upset because the older son says to the father, listen, I've been here the whole time. I've been working like I should have. I've treated you with the utmost respect and you've never had a giant party for me. Yet my son, my brother comes home, doesn't call him by name. He says, that son of yours comes home and you have a giant party for him. And it, it, there's a sense in which that parable is pointing out for us the, the real difficulty with the forgiveness that God offers us. It seems inherently unfair. It seems inherently unfair to the older brother that his younger brother ought to be treated like that. And that's the, 
the forgiveness that's offered in the gospel seems inherently unfair because we'll never be able to pay it back. That's the reason that in this, in this prayer, we're asked, forgive us our debts because our sin is like a debt that we can never repay. And yet we have that wonderful, gracious, kind Father who does for us what we absolutely need. So the first thing we learn is that by being able to call God Father, we learn that He is a kind Father. Some of you may not have had kind fathers, and it may be difficult for you to think of God as a father because it reminds you about the the unkindness of your own father. But this father, Jesus wants us to realize, is the kindest of all people. He is the greatest of fathers, the one who is kind when no one else will be. That's what we know about the father from this passage. But there's a second thing. We know not only that he's kind, but we also know that he provides for us. And you see that in the middle of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Now, realize that our culture today is significantly different from the culture in which Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer. In our culture, there are generally very few people in our country at least, who who don't have enough to eat. It's very rare that someone goes hungry. It happens, but it's not that often. In the culture in which Jesus lives, there were two kinds of people. You were either very poor or you were rich. There was very, very small middle class, almost none. And so those who were poor, which was the vast majority, probably upwards of 90%, went out doing day labor so that they could get enough food to eat for that day. And that's the reason that Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, because he realized that those people who were listening, those people whom he was teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, many of them were just getting enough food for today. It's, it's very different from our kind of culture where if we think that a hurricane is going to come, we go and fill up our, our refrigerator with all kinds of stuff, and then it spoils when the electricity goes out. We think that if we don't have enough food for 10 days, then we're not going to be able to live. That wasn't the way it was in those times. It's a very interesting word there, the, the word that is translated daily. From what we can tell, it's, it doesn't occur anywhere else in Greek literature before this. There's only a few words in the New Testament that, that, don't, that don't occur anywhere else or don't occur anywhere else before this time. This is one of them. And so scholars are divided about exactly how it should be translated. In some translations, you'll, it'll say, give us our daily bread. In some translations, it'll say, give us enough bread for today. In other translations, it'll say, give us bread sufficient for tomorrow. But whatever it is, however it should be translated, the thing that we realize without any question at all is that these people are praying that they could have enough food to eat for the next day or two. That's the position that they're in. And they have to depend upon someone to make sure that they could have some way of getting enough food for today. That's what they're doing. And we, though we don't have that same sort of poverty in, in our culture mostly, 
we still need a father who provides for us because we all face times in our life when we don't know what's going to happen or where our next job is going to come from or where we're going to be living. We all face these times in our life when we say, I just, this is out of my control. I I can't do it. And Jesus is teaching us here to realize that not only are these huge problems out of our control, but even the smallest problem is out of our control. And that what we all ought to realize is that we have a good and gracious heavenly father in front of us who provides for us when we need it and what we need. Doesn't provide everything we want, just like your father didn't give you everything you want, but he provides for us that which we absolutely need. So we learn that we have a kind father and we learn that we have a father who provides for us. There's a third thing that we can learn from this prayer that is helpful for us. A third thing we learn about the Heavenly Father, and that is we have a Father who forgives us. And you see it there in the 12th verse, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Debt is a really large metaphor in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, many, many times in his gospel, uses debt as sin. So it's as if we stand before God and every time that we have broken his law, we owe him money. And it just keeps compounding and compounding and compounding and compounding. And that's the reason that Matthew uses this debtors here. He does it again in a much, much larger type of scheme in Matthew 18 in that story of the unforgiving debtor. Very fascinating story that we won't go into this morning. But it's that, that idea that God is saying to us, we ought to forgive other people like they forgive us. More than any other issue in, in my life, I have studied forgiveness. Maybe because I need so much of it, I don't know. But I I remember years ago when I was writing my uh, dissertation on forgiveness, I was also working in a restaurant doing uh, magic, got got out of the Santa Claus business, and people would ask me, what what else do you do besides this? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm uh, studying, working on a PhD in theology, and uh, whatever, we don't care about that. Show us another card trick. But then, when I told them, I'm writing about Jesus and forgiveness, it was almost as if this switch was thrown. And I came to learn from that, that everybody, everybody has some existential question in their mind about forgiveness. It's either whether or not they should forgive someone or whether or not someone should forgive them. And the truth of the matter is, that's a huge question. Because all of us have been wronged by people, and all of us have wronged people. And yet, Matthew, in this prayer, quotes Jesus and teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us like we forgive other people. That's a frightening, frightening thing. Isn't it? 
You're essentially saying to God, treat me like I treat other people. That's scary. Do we really want God treating us like we treat other people? That's what we're praying. We're praying that because we have a father, a wonderful, a great heavenly father who genuinely loves us and forgives us. And I think that there are so many people in the world who are looking for their father's approval and forgiveness. And for many of us, time has marched on and we can't achieve that kind of forgiveness in this life. But forgiveness is one of the most powerful transactions in the world. And sometimes, just like in the story of the prodigal son, it seems like it's unfair. It seems like forgiveness is not what ought to be done. It seems like forgiveness isn't right. It seems like retaliation is what ought to take place. And all that you have to do is think about feuds like the Hatfields and McCoys or the retaliation during the Civil War. All that you have to think about is that retaliation to realize that, that all that it does is create problems. But we, we, we seem to think that seeking justice and retaliation over forgiveness is what we should do. And yet we have a lot of vivid proofs of what happens when there's no forgiveness. In Shakespeare and Sophocles' historical tragedies, bodies litter the stage, Macbeth, Richard III, Electra from Sophocles, all show us what happens. They kill and they kill and they kill until they have got their revenge. And then they live in fear unless some other person might have survived to take counter revenge. Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather trilogy and Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven illustrate the same law. That is the problem that if we are unwilling to forgive, then this cycle of violence and hatefulness goes on and on and on. And never, it's never going to be what it ought to be. Gandhi said, if everyone were to follow the eye for the eye principle of justice, the whole world would be blind. Jesus is trying to get us to a different world. A world where not everyone is blind. A world where certain we realize that people have harmed us and yet we offer them forgiveness because of the great forgiveness that has been offered to us. Because when we stand before God and all of those sins that we have committed are there in front of us and it is as if our giant bill that we can never repay. Matthew says that Jesus steps in and says, I will pay that. I'll pay it for you. No matter how big the bill is, Jesus says, if you will accept his sacrifice, I will pay that for you. That's the message of the gospel, that we have done lots of things that we shouldn't have, that others have done lots of things that they shouldn't have to us. But at the end of the day, when we stand before God, we can either try to pay the bill ourselves and end up not being able to, or we can depend on God to pay the bill for us. There's a, a marvelous book that if you haven't read it, you, you, you ought to. It's a, it's a 
really exciting. It's just a book that you ought to read. It's called The Sunflower. It was written by Simon Weisenthal, who later in his life... Uh, headed up sort of a hunt for those Nazis who had escaped and gotten away. And in the book, Weisenthal was a young man. He had studied to be an engineer, and he was doing well, and then Hitler and the Nazis took over, and he was Jewish. And he saw his grandmother pushed down the stairs to her death by one of the Nazi guards. He saw his mother herded into a train by other Nazi guards while he was pushed off somewhere else to go to a concentration camp. And the nice suits that he had worn as an engineer were taken away from him and he was, wore those, those clothes of the concentration camp that we've all seen with the Star of David on there. And one day, Weisenthal gets a call from one of the guards that he's needed at a makeshift hospital. It had been a school, the school where Weisenthal had gone, and now it was made into a makeshift hospital for those Nazis who had been injured. And so he goes there, and he meets, he meets this nun at the door, of all things. And she takes him up the stairs, down the hall, and into this dark room. And at first he can't see anything and he has to allow his eyes to focus. And then he sees that there's a man lying there on, the, on a bed by himself and he's bandaged. His face is bandaged, he's obviously blind, he's burned all over his body and he has white bandages all over him. And Weisenthal was just left there. The nun took him inside the room, closed the door and left him there. And he didn't know what he was supposed to do. And so he stood there for a few minutes. And then he was just about ready to go when this man who was lying there in the bed reached out this cloth-covered arm and grabbed hold of him and said, Are you a Jew? And Weisenthal said, yes, I am. And the man lying there said, I, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. I desperately need a Jew to tell me that I'm forgiven. The man's name was Carl. And he explained to Weisenthal that he had, at one point, gone into a, a, a a, ha a village where the Russians had left, left only some people there, and that many of his men were killed by the booby traps that were left by the Russians. And they got so angry that they gathered up all of the Jews in the village. They rounded them up. They put them into this three-story building. They doused the building with gas, and then they set it on fire. And then they ringed the building with soldiers to shoot anyone who ran out. And he said, I still remember that. These, these men and women and children screaming, either being burned alive or running out to be shot down, used for target practice. I still remember that. It was awful. He said, I remember one particular person. It was a father. 
who had a little child with him with dark hair. And he was doing all that he could to, to shield his child. He was keeping his hand over his eyes. And finally, he ran out and I shot him. He said, I can't believe that I did that. I hate that. I need a Jew to tell me that I'm forgiven. And there was Weisenthal standing there thinking about what he should do. This could be one of the Nazis who had shoved his grandmother down the stairs and killed her. Could be one of the ones who took his mother away. And at the end of the war, a large number of Weisenthal's family had been killed by the Nazis. And he stood there, not quite sure what he should do. And Carl kept pleading with him, please, please, I need a Jew to tell me that I'm forgiven. And then Weisenthal turned around, walked out of the room without saying a word. And that bothered him. If you read the book, you will realize how badly it bothered him because he went and found Carl's mother later on to find out more about what kind of a person he was. And in the book, he asks various religious leaders what he should have done in that situation. I don't pretend to know what Weisenthal should have done in that situation. But I do know that there is another Jew who was born 2,000 years ago who taught us that we can really have forgiveness. There's another Jew who taught us that no matter how high our bill is, he will pay it. Another God made flesh, the one and only Jesus Christ, that Jewish man never turns around and walks out of the room. And so today we can take great comfort in the fact that we have a father who is kind, a father who provides for us. But more than that, much more than that, we have a father who forgives us. Perhaps you need that forgiveness today. And if you do, I would urge you to find someone and talk to them. Maybe you need to forgive someone else on this particular day. Whatever the case might be, I hope that never again will you pray the Lord's Prayer without thinking carefully about that line. Forgive us like we forgive other people.